Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. Now, Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. time we left you al capone had just officially taken over the outfit after torio retired right in chicago in chicago so al capone's officially in chicago and now he's the big boss of the outfit all right despite al's reputation for violence he also began to develop a reputation for generosity one infamous story which has been purported as true has Al walking into a restaurant on a cold winter night and seeing a young paper boy shivering and attempting to sell his papers. Al walked over to him, bought his entire stack, and told the boy to go home, get warm, and to make sure he gave some of that money to his mother. He also made the boy promise to stay in school. I'm assuming the boy knew who he was. I don't know, (laughs) but that's what I mean when we, we talked a little bit about it last episode, but That's what's so interesting about Capone is how he does super sweet, nice things like that. But then he, in the very next breath, could go shoot someone's brains out. Right. I think back also in that, back in that time and that, you know, in that era, early 1900s, 20s and stuff, I'm sure everybody knew who he was. We'll see throughout this part in particular, he starts to really get world famous. Right. So by 1926, it was clear that Al had become a target of rival gangs, and his paranoia was evident. He purchased an entire apartment building and turned it into a military-level fortress. According to Bayer's book, he had the front door steel-plated, had an eight-foot-high brick wall built around the entirety of the property, and also had an underground tunnel built from the building to its detached garage so he was able to come and go from the property without being seen. He also began driving around in a bulletproof Cadillac sedan. Wow. Al's bedroom was built to be a sex room. <laughs> okay. In, in which the entire ceiling was made of mirrors. Ugh. And it's said that many sex workers were seen coming and going from the room. All right. One biographer claimed that it was also during this time that Capone developed an intense cocaine habit, which ultimately led to a deviated nasal septum. However, this has never been 100% verified. Okay. Although I'm going to say I personally think it's true because as we'll see throughout, he will have parties that last for days. Oh, really? How are you partying for three days straight if you're not doing some cocaine? Was cocaine, like, a popular thing back then? I don't know that it was popular, but it existed. Okay. I'm just saying, there's no way you're you're staying up partying just on alcohol for three days straight. No, 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 of course not. Right. You're definitely having some type of upper amphetamine or some type of stimulant for sure. But I didn't realize it, like, I mean, makes sense that cocaine's around back then, but I never really thought about it. You know, you think of that time, you think prohibition and alcohol, and that's, you know, you don't think about, you know, weed or right cocaine or you know lsd or heroin or, or whatever i mean i don't know yeah so. i mean i know for a fact lsd wasn't invented yet but cocaine right. like it comes from a plant yeah you're probably right yeah by this point the outfit was dealing in drugs because oh, remember okay. what remember when torio ran it but i was good with it i was good with it oh, right. he consumed them so 
Yeah. The outfit was dealing drugs, but there is no concrete evidence that Capone himself actually used drugs. Okay. However, it is verified that Capone did utilize sex workers and drink massive amounts of alcohol. Capone never got overly intoxicated in public, but he would in the safety of his compound. There are many reports of him getting so drunk that he would destroy furniture and punch holes in walls. While he was intoxicated, if someone dared to speak to him in a manner that he didn't like, he would beat them and at times even kill them. Okay, I believe that. It was evident that Capone was fearful for his life during this time as a result of the intense gang wars going on. So as soon as he took over, these gang wars broke out. He was quoted as saying, I've been in this racket long enough to realize that a man in my game must take the breaks, the fortunes of war. I haven't had any peace of mind in years. Every minute I'm in danger of death. I don't want to end up in the gutter, punctuated by machine gun slugs. It was at this point that Capone moved the outfit's headquarters from Cicero to the Metropole Hotel on South Michigan Avenue. This hotel also had a series of tunnels built underneath it. The tunnels were built by the hotel to make deliveries easier in the winter months, but Capone also used these to his advantage as escape routes. So I looked up the hotel. It's no longer there. So if you were hoping to see it. That's where I think that's like, um, that's where he ended up like residing, right? He lived there. Yeah, so he, he basically booked up entire suites. So like all his med would stay there. He had rooms there, plus an office. Metropole, right? Was that what it was called? Yeah, well, you'll yeah. see. He moves around a lot. So he actually, oh, okay. his headquarters were in a few different hotels. Oh, okay. All right. So makes sense. But he always, always in hotels. He's always been associated with living in hotels or. Right. So he still owned the house on Prairie Avenue, the one that he bought that his family lived in. Okay. But he would run business out of the hotels. He never ran business out of his family home. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, he kept them separate. So this hotel, the Metropole, was demolished in 1972. So if you wanted to go see it like me, you can't. Damn. So by now, Capone was so paranoid that he had eight bodyguards with him at all times. An article in the New Yorker at the time described the men as, quote, double-walled fortresses of meat. Because they were all, like, jacked and huge. Yeah, they were, like, the biggest guys he could find. Yeah. Capone also always carried two pistols holstered under both armpits for easy access. Additionally, he had all of his meals prepared by a private chef who was watched by bodyguards while he prepared the food. And before the chef served the food to Al, he was required to taste the food in front of Al to ensure that it wasn't poisoned. Right. I've heard that, too. It was a big thing with him. However, in 1928, Capone was still paranoid and not satisfied with the level of protection the Metropole Hotel afforded him. So he once again moved the outfit's headquarters. This time, he moved down the street to another hotel, the Lexington Hotel, which was only down the block, and it happened to have a series of tunnels underneath it as well. Okay. This hotel was also demolished. So if you wanted to go see it, once again, you can't. Damn. It was demolished in 95. Okay. At this hotel, Capone rented out a 10-room suite on the top floor. According to Deirdre Bear's book, the hotel was impenetrable because Capone installed, quote, all kinds of traps, escape routes, alarms, hidden panels, moving walls, everything a security-conscious gangster required. Okay. 
Despite all of these security measures, Capone was still fearful for his life and had the mob's lawyer, Edward J. O'Hare, who was known as Artful Eddie. (laughs) The nicknames are like my favorite. Yeah. So Artful Eddie purchased a huge property near Hayward, Wisconsin, which Capone named the property Raw Cap. Capone instructed Eddie O'Hare to have the buildings on the property fortified, and he ordered him to build a gun tower. At the time, these modifications cost Capone about $250,000, which today would amount to $4.1 million. Jeez Louise. So he basically had this lawyer buy the property because all his money was illegal. So he had to have other people yeah, he, buy yeah. stuff. And, and he probably didn't want, his, yeah, he didn't want his name on it either. Right. So. Once the property was fortified to Capone's standards, he went into hiding in Wisconsin. There have been more attempts on his life than upon that of any other gangster. Oh, okay. So, all right. It's because, remember, I, like I said in the beginning, there was all these gang wars going on ever since he took over. So constantly people are trying to take over his territory. He's trying to take over right. other people's territory. So everyone's fighting everyone. All the, right. all the crime families were like fighting each other. Right. Which happens all the time. I mean, they're always trying to get more territory or take over or whatever. So it makes sense that he's the most powerful man in Chicago that people are always going to, between the police and other gangs and stuff, are constantly going after him. So Capone stayed safely secluded in Rock Cap for some time. That is until the murder of District Attorney William H. McSwiggin in April of 1926. During this time, William McSwiggin was a young prosecutor determined to make a name for himself in Chicago. He began swearing to the media that he was going to take Capone down for the murder of another low-level gangster whose name was Joe Howard. Despite these claims, Capone boasted to his confidants that he had nothing to be worried about because McSwiggin was actually on his payroll. However, this has never been verified. Okay. One night in April, a limousine that belonged to a rival gang known as the O'Donnell Gang was seen driving through the outfit's known territory in Cicero. Capone was enraged that they would dare enter his territory, so he ordered his men to attack the limousine. He and a number of his men climbed into five separate vehicles. They blocked the limousine in and opened fire. Once the smoke had cleared, Many of the O'Donnell gangsters were wounded, but a drunken William McSwiggin was dead inside. It is unclear if Capone knew McSwiggin was inside when he and his men opened fire, and to this day, it is still unknown why District Attorney McSwiggin was in the company of these known rival gangsters, apparently who he'd been partying with because he was drunk. Well, he might have been on the take from a bunch of different people, District Attorney or whatever, so he's not only going after Capone, he's going, I'm sure, after all the criminal elements. So it could have been a very lucrative position for a time, you know? So regardless of whether or not Capone realized what he'd been doing at the time, the murder, because some people claim that he purposely killed McSwiggin. Right. But other people are like, no, he didn't realize he was in the vehicle. Right. Wrong place, right time type of situation. Right. right. Got it. The murder put an even bigger target on Capone's back. For the next four months, authorities worked hard to indict Capone for William McSwiggin's murder. They raided Al's brother's house, Ralph, and found a shit ton of weapons, but none that could be linked to the McSwiggin shootout. Okay. They also raided Capone's family home on Prairie Avenue, so his wife's home. Oh. Where they attempted to question his wife and family, but all refused to talk to police. 
they also were unable to locate any evidence of any crime within the home because he never ran business out of there. There was nothing there. Right. So despite all of this, authorities were ultimately unsuccessful in charging Al with any crime, mainly because Capone once again had gone into hiding and the authorities were unable to find him in order to question him or to charge him. And because they were unable to lay their hands on any physical evidence. Right. As it turned out, Following the shooting, Al had left his brother Ralph in charge of running the outfit's day-to-day operations and went into hiding at his gangster friend Dominic Roberto's home in Chicago Heights. Capone stayed in the home for eight days, never leaving for fear of being caught by the authorities or a rival gang, as now it was all-out war in the streets of Chicago. As one reporter put it, quote, territorial claims were ignored, trucks were hijacked, breweries and distilleries robbed, and Chicago streets echoed to the roar of gunshots, the crack of automatic pistols, and the rattle of machine guns. Yep. Wild. Yeah. The the night Chicago died. Yeah. It's crazy to think about. Yeah. It happened. Like, it's American history. You know, it's (laughs) people forget about it, but it happened. In return for Dominic's hospitality... Al gifted him with a diamond-studded belt buckle, which was a common gift that he gave to his most devoted men. Really? Of his stay there, Dominic's wife later said, quote, he was a perfect gentleman at all times. After eight days, Capone grew restless and snuck out of Dominic's home under the cover of darkness and made his way to a distant family member's home in Freeport. He had his men examine all of the outfit's ledgers while there to ensure the business was being run appropriately, And once again, he did not leave the house for fear of being seen. He stayed there until May of 1926 and then moved once again, this time to Lansing, Michigan. Here, Capone drifted between a hotel and the home of one of his best friends, Tony Lombardo. Tony had actually been a part of the outfit years before, but had asked permission to leave the gang and go straight and was granted permission, which that's rare. That is very rare. Once you're in, you're in. I'm not getting out. Was his wife moving with him? Or was he moving solo at this point? Good question. No, he's by himself. His wife is is Stayed home in their, in their like family home, along with his mom and his sister. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Because Tony Lombardo had only held a low-level position within the mob, he was allowed to leave, and they granted him permission. Hmm. Okay. However, in repayment for his being allowed to leave with no repercussions, he'd always assured Al that if he ever needed anything, he would do it. Right. So when Al was in desperate need of a hiding place, he reached out to Tony, believing that no one would suspect he would be with a non-affiliated family member. Right. While in Lansing, Capone was free to move as he pleased because it was so far from Chicago that he had little fear of being caught. Capone kept the residents of Lansing quiet with his generosity. He would often randomly give people on the streets money and would pay for some of the poorer residents' bills. He also helped several families pay for their children's college educations and even paid for several expensive medical treatments that people in the community needed. That's it. Went them over. Went them over with cash. By mid-July, Capone knew the police were not able to pin McSwiggin's murder on him any longer, or on anyone for that matter. It never was solved. He was also made aware that many of the rival gangs back in Chicago were in disarray because many of their leaders had died during the violent gang wars that he'd escaped. Mm -hmm. 
However, because of his few months in hiding, his gang, the outfit, was still in great condition, and he suffered very little casualties. As a result, Capone finally felt safe enough to return to Chicago. Al, knowing the police had nothing to charge him with, finally decided to turn himself into Chicago PD. On July 28, 1926, Capone was dropped off on 106th Street, which was along the Indiana-Illinois border, and he informed the police he was waiting for them. When they arrived, he said, quote, I understand you boys are looking for me. <laughs> Man, he had some attitude. He did. Like, I mean, again, he's a monster and a criminal, but it's like some of the some of the things that occurred were like, I don't want to say you're like rooting for him, but you're just like in awe of like that dude had like the balls, you know, size of basketballs. Like yeah, he, had he, had some some cojones. Cojones. he had some cojones on him that, you know, but that was the time back then. You know, you, you were either tough or you weren't right back then so he was arrested and taken into the chicago criminal courts building where he staunchly proclaimed his innocence and denied having any knowledge of mcswiggin's murder (laughs) he told investigators that he had no motive to kill mcswiggin because quote i paid mcswiggin plenty and i got what i paid for while this could never be so he admitted to bribing yeah he told them i why would i kill him i bribed him and he gave me information Hmm. all right that's interesting While this could never be proven, it did effectively stain McSwiggin's reputation. However, despite their lack of evidence, to Capone's astonishment, the judge sentenced him to spend the night in jail regardless. The next day, at a hearing, the investigators were forced to admit that they had no evidence against Capone, and the judge had no choice but to dismiss the charges and release Capone from jail. He was now once again a free man in the streets of Chicago. That's it. The city that he owned. In all of his months in hiding, Capone had been in contact with his family, but had not seen them. So you might think that after he got released, he'd go home and visit his wife and son. No, no, no. That didn't happen, no. He went to a brothel? Well, instead, he went directly to his favorite hotel and... With the mirrors on the ceiling? So, well, he went to a hotel in Cicero, and it was called the Hawthorne Hotel. to celebrate his homecoming and the fact that he and the outfit were officially the kings of bootleg liquor in Chicago. There you go. When Al finally did return home, his mother cried and exclaimed how worried she'd been, and she and May attempted to convince him to retire from his life of crime. Capone assured them that he loved and had missed them, but refused to retire and flat out told his family that it was not ever going to be an option. Capone told one reporter during this time, quote, I'm the boss and I'm going to continue to run things. Don't let anybody kid you into thinking I can be run out of town. I haven't run yet and I'm not going to. During this time, Capone also turned the outfit into a well-oiled business. One of Capone's most trusted gunmen's wives, Georgette Winkler, was impressed by Capone's level of business savvy and recalled it saying, quote, The entire Capone enterprise was based on illegitimate business and not the cruder form of crime. His enterprise was so impressive that eventually the Harvard Business School conducted a case study of it. Yep. He took illegal activity and became wealthy off of it and somehow turned it, I don't want to say made it legal, but made it. Well, he was good at laundering the money. So in a sense, it kind of did make it legal Uh, money. Yeah, yo, you're right. Yeah, so, but I mean, yeah, it was incredible how he was able to, but he just absorbed so many businesses and took over, you know, to clean the money that it was just in that time, like when you were talking about the gangs 
you know, a lot of the leaders were killed. He absorbed a lot of those people too, you right. know, those underlings and whatever. So his numbers increased as well. Not only was the outfit still intact, but it bolstered in, in numbers. So, you know, definitely grew stronger. So Capone was the president of the outfit, but it also contained a board of directors, which consisted of 12 members. All in all, the outfit employed hundreds of people, and it was run much like a corporation, which was somewhat unheard of at that time. The outfit had its hand in brothels, illegal distilleries and breweries, gambling, real estate, drugs, and more. Capone was really the first true mafioso. By 1928, the outfit was bringing in a profit of $105 million, which in today's currency would equate to about $1.8 billion a year. And all of it was in cash. Yeah, zero tax. That's why. That's yeah, why he's he not paying getting... taxes on any of this, as right. we'll come to learn. Right. Yeah, it's all, I don't want to say it's all profit, but it's not all profit, but it's, he's making that kind of money and paying for whatever he wants. Like, essentially, I mean. During this time, Capone told the press, quote, you know what will happen if you put me out of business? I have 185 men on my personal payroll and I pay them from 300 to 400 a week. They're all ex-convicts and gunmen, but they are respectable businessmen now, just as respectable as the people who buy my stuff and gamble at my places. If you put me out of business, I'll turn every one of those 185 respectable old convicts loose on Chicago. Yeah, he's, he, he held the city under, like, under siege. Like, <laughs> he owned, that's why they said he owned Chicago. There wasn't no fucking, the mayor was there, but he well, the, As we'll come to find out, the mayor is in his pocket. Everybody was in his pocket. Yes. Capone acted as a Robin Hood among the people of Chicago in order to keep up his public image. He was very generous with his money. He was known to ride through the streets of Chicago and toss coins and $100 bills to pedestrians on the street. Also, whenever he was invited to weddings, baptisms, or any other such events, he was known to give thousands of dollars as gifts. However, despite his generosity, Capone was a huge gambler and would often drop hundreds of thousands of dollars on a single card game, which for back, that's a lot now. Back yeah. then, that was a lot. Yeah. He made a billion dollars. What the, what the hell is, uh, you know? Yeah. He's like, then, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Men will just go make more. Also during this time, Al had gotten really into golf. He was apparently an extremely bad golfer. But he believed he was exceptional because people were too afraid of his drunken temper to let him lose. Chill, yeah. So he thought he was this great golfer and everyone's like, no, he sucks. No, dude, you just suck. We're just going to play worse than you. <laughs> he would frequently get angry during games and would drunkenly wave around his gun threatening people. During one golf game in particular, Capone got so angry that he slammed down his golf bag, which held his gun. The gun accidentally went off and shot Capone through his scrotum. What? Yes. No, that's bullshit. Yes. Really? He spent a week in the hospital healing. He got shot in the dick? He got shot right in the old balls. Good Lord. He spent a week in the hospital healing where many would later admit that they witnessed his wife, May, berating him for his stupidity. <laughs> yeah, She's well, like, your yeah. dumbass got yourself shot in the dick. You're messing with the family jewels. <laughs> However, although May never confronted Al about his affairs with other women, May also may have been upset at this time because Capone had been carrying on an affair with his caddy's sister, Ida Sullivan, with whom he had been especially obsessed. 
Oh, geez. Following his scrotum incident. <laughs> Capone scrotum incident. I, that was one fact that I found hilarious and I had never heard before. I never heard that either. You I'm would sure think he didn't be, want that published. No, probably not. But you would think that would be like the lead on every story about Al Capone. <laughs> he had a lot of the media in his pocket as well. Like he only allowed what he wanted to be printed. Of course, right. He owned Chicago. Correct. He owned it. At one point, he had he owned all of it. Following his scrotum incident, <laughs> <laughs> Al pushed for Bill Thompson, who was on his payroll, to be elected the mayor of Chicago. And ultimately, he was. This gave Capone even more power within Chicago, and many of the local police were also placed on the outfit's payroll and helped deliver and secure illegal liquor Capone was distributing. Interestingly, Capone did not believe in segregating his speakeasies, which was unique to the time. At Capone's clubs, blacks and whites mingled freely together. Really? He was oh. also reputed to be very fair to his black employees, which were mainly employed as entertainers at his clubs. Wow, okay. The jazz bass player, Milt Hinton, whose uncle worked for Capone for a time, said of him, quote, he was more or less a Robin Hood within the black community. Capone also sold liquor to two of the most popular cabarets that catered specifically to black clientele. They were called the Plantation and the Sunset. Capone also became good friends with Louis Armstrong and would offer him protection whenever he came to Chicago. Later, Louis would describe Al as, quote, this is funny, quote, <laughs> a nice little cute fat boy, young, like some professor who had just come out of college to teach or something. Wow. <laughs> he called Al Capone a cute little fat boy. <laughs> He's probably the only person that could ever call him that. However, there were also moments when Capone was intensely racist. There was times when he was intensely racist? Yeah. Oh, okay. For example, although he would employ Black people in certain roles within his brothels and clubs, none were actually allowed to be members of the outfit. Oh, okay. There was also one incident where clarinetist Johnny Dobbs had been playing for Capone, and Capone was drunk. He requested a song that Dodds did not know, and Capone became so incensed that he ripped a $100 bill in half, shoved each of the two pieces in Dodds' ears, and called him the N-word. Another time, a pianist named Fats Weller was kidnapped by Capone's men at gunpoint and brought him to the Hawthorne Hotel. Capone was throwing a huge party and demanded that Waller play. The party lasted for three days, and the entire time Waller was forced to play at gunpoint whenever Capone requested. Wow. Once the party was over, Capone shoved thousands of dollars into Waller's pockets and had his men drive him back to his house. Jesus. Horrible. It is horrible. So although Capone made certain strides forward in the name of equality, it was not out of the kindness of his heart oh, or because he cared about the plight of Black individuals, but rather that he recognized that they could be useful to him in certain aspects of his business. Absolutely. Everything to forward the business. Yeah, he, that's the one thing about Capone. Like, I think the only time he's nice is because it gets him somewhere. Absolutely. That's like the, the crazy genius of him. Like, I really think he was like a sociopath, you know, like he, oh, sure. he ultimately only cared about himself and he just was good at manipulating to get what he wanted. Well, as, as we've talked before and, and you know, Anybody that has the ability to take life, you know, and, and not have remorse or, or you feel anything, the sociopath, they have to be like, there's, you know, 
there's something wrong in their brain like there's a switch off or absolutely by this time capone had become somewhat of a celebrity and could barely leave his home without a horde of reporters and photographers accosting him so like many of the celebrities of today capone had to become very adept at manipulating the media and what was said about him because he was so good at this capone was seen by many as a local hero Additionally, because of his celebrity status, Capone was rarely, if ever, alone, a fact that desperately annoyed his wife, who rarely was able to be alone with her husband at any time. By the end of 1926, realizing he held most of the power among all of the gangs of Chicago, Capone finally called a meeting with the surviving gang leaders demanding that the long-lasting gang wars come to an end. At this meeting, Capone demanded that all of the rival gang leaders respect the boundaries of the outfit's operation, and he divided the remainder of the city into bootlegging areas and assigned them to the opposing gangs. As the rival gangs were still reeling from the number of men they'd lost in the wars, they begrudgingly accepted Capone's demands. Following the meeting, Capone told a reporter, quote, I told them we are making a shooting gallery out of a great business and nobody's going to profit by it. Although there was a truce on paper, not many of the gangs actually fully adhered to this truce. And by 1927, many rival gang leaders were still attempting to kill Capone at any opportunity they got. I bet. Due to his fame and his fear of death, Capone thought it would be a good time to buy a vacation home in California. That way, he and May could escape the cold for a few months each year. But more importantly, he could infiltrate and extort the unions being formed within the growing movie industry in L.A. at the time. <laughs> yeah, he's always got an end goal. That's it. So on December 6, 1927, Al, May, his son, Sonny, and an entourage of bodyguards boarded a train headed for the West Coast. Prior to his departure, for he and his family's protection, Capone had a story planted in the press that he was actually moving permanently to St. Petersburg, Florida, just in case any of the rival gangs were planning an attempt on his life. He didn't want them to really know where he was going. The trip took three days by train, and when the group arrived at L.A.'s Union Station, they were greeted by a horde of reporters and L.A.'s police chief, who had all somehow discovered that Capone was coming to L.A. In front of the flashing cameras, the police chief told Capone that he was not welcome in L.A. Despite this humiliating warning, Capone and his party made their way to the Biltmore Hotel, where he had booked a room under the name Al Brown. But when they arrived and the staff realized who Capone actually was, they too told him he was not welcome to stay for longer than two nights, only long enough to make train reservations to leave California. Wow. So May and Al never left the hotel and instead made reservations to return to Chicago. And when they arrived back at the train station, they discovered that the police chief was back again to ensure that they were actually leaving L.A. Holy moly. All right. However, once reports had come out that Capone was in fact in L.A., the Chicago police chief announced that Capone had only gone to California because he'd been driven out of Chicago by the hardworking police department, which was obviously a lie. But he was like, we drove him out. Yeah, take the opportunity. Oh, no, he's coming right back. Oh, okay, great. And then he said he would never allow Capone back in Chicago. When reporters informed Capone of these claims, he responded, quote, I'm a property owner and a taxpayer in Chicago. I can certainly return to my own home. On the train ride back to Chicago, Capone's fame was made apparent because at every stop, hundreds of people had gathered attempting to see Al Capone and they all had to be held at bay by local police. 
Capone was warned that if he stepped foot off of the train at any of these stops, police would shoot him for causing a riot. Holy mother of goodness. However, Capone was too smart to be thwarted from entering Chicago. Rather than get off the train in Chicago and be accosted by police, he left Sonny and May on board while he exited the train in Joliet. However, Capone was immediately intercepted by the Joliet police who were waiting for him at the train stop. When he, when he exited the train, he was patted down by police and arrested for carrying an illegal weapon. As Capone was arrested, he handed the officers his excess ammo and said, quote, you'd think I was Jesse James and the Youngers all in one. <laughs> Capone spent the night in jail and the next morning his lawyers arrived to get him out. He paid about $3,000 in fines and was released. As he exited the police station to climb into his bulletproof black sedan, there was a crowd of people who all cheered him on as he waved while he stepped into the vehicle. His bodyguards drove him from Joliet back to Chicago, where his men threw him a huge welcome home bash. However, when Capone finally made his way home to his house on Prairie Avenue after the party, he found it surrounded by Chicago police. They informed Capone that he could enter his home, but they had orders to arrest him each time he attempted to leave. Capone and his family were incensed because now they not only had to deal with the pressure of the police, but the press had also camped themselves out outside of Capone's house, hoping to catch an altercation between he and the police. Yeah, now they know where his family lives. Right. Finally, due to the mounting pressure, Capone decided to leave Chicago until all of the attention died down, and he announced to the press that this time he and his family were really going to Florida for the winter. He told reporters that he would be leaving in January of 1928 and was looking to buy a vacation home in Miami. And he certainly did. Miami. Mm -hmm. He claimed that he wanted to become a law-abiding citizen and hoped to open a restaurant there. <laughs> sure. The press immediately turned their attention to the chief of police in Miami and wondered if he too would turn Capone away as the chief of police in LA and Chicago had done. However, to their surprise, the Miami chief of police told the press, quote, if he's just here to have a good time and doesn't start any rough stuff, I won't bother him. So Miami chief of police like, come on it's down come and on. just don't start any of that rough uh, stuff. Okay? You know, it's city of Miami. You know, what are you going to do? The cocaine cowboys were gearing up down there. Hey, well, that was a little before then, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's just so Miami of him. Like, yeah, come on down. Whatever. On down. It's fine. Enjoy the beach. <laughs> so with that assurance, Capone made his way to Miami. While he decided where he'd like to buy, he rented a house under a fake name in a wealthy neighborhood and also rented the penthouse at the Hotel Ponce de Leon, which is still going strong in old Coral Gables. It is. So if any of our Miami listeners want to swing on by, the you can see Ponce. it. Yep. Take, take some pictures, send it to us. Mm -hmm. However, the wealthy populace of Miami made it clear they did not approve of Al Capone, and they bombarded the mayor of Miami, John Newton Loomis Jr., with requests to kick Capone out of Miami. In January of 1928, Loomis finally complied and asked Capone to visit his office. There, Loomis asked Capone to leave Miami, candidly telling him that a large majority of the citizens of Miami did not want him there. However, somehow Capone managed to charm the mayor and the city manager into allowing him to stay, telling them that he couldn't stand the thought of uprooting his innocent wife and son again. After the meeting, Loomis told reporters that he had no issue with Capone staying in Miami and even called him a fair and reasonable man. 
unreal. <laughs> it was very important that Capone make nice with all of the prominent people of Miami, as he was very smart with his money and knew he could not have accounts and certain legal agreements in his own name because his money was obviously earned illegally. Right. Therefore, it was imperative that he form relationships with prominent people who would make it possible for Capone to purchase a property in Miami, as Capone had no legal bank accounts in his own name. One of Al's right-hand men, Tony Berardi, said of Capone, quote, he was no dummy. He was one hell of an organizer. He knew how to pick people for certain positions in certain categories. Yep. Finally, on March 27th, 1928, Capone purchased a property in Miami at 93 Palm Avenue on Palm Island. Mm -hmm. The purchase was made in cash. The house featured a 30 by 60 foot swimming pool, which at the time was the largest private pool in all of Florida. Mm -hmm. Is that house still there? They just, I think they're either planning on tearing it down or they already did to build something newer. Somebody bought it and but it was there for the longest time. You could, it's those islands, it's Palm Island, Star Island, and there's a third one. You can't get on it unless you live there, but you can like get on a boat and go through the intercoastal and stuff and, and see it. And his house was one of the, the biggest, like it was like the most, one of the most popular ones because of the history, because that's and, where he uh, ended up dying. So JLo lives there too, if anyone was wondering. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Strangely, Mayor Loomis was the buyer's agent of record on the sale documents of the home. What? Yeah. He was yeah. also a realtor. So Mayor Loomis was the buyer's agent. You gotta love Miami, boy. I'm gonna tell you right now. You gotta love Miami. Can't make this shit up. So the home was purchased in the name of Parker A. Henderson Jr., who happened to be the manager at the Ponce de Leon Hotel. Mm. So he technically owns the house. Mm. Yeah, okay. Following the purchase, the house was eventually placed in his wife May's name. Right. As excited as Capone was about his newly acquired home, it would ultimately become his downfall because unbeknownst to him, there was a federal law which stated that even illegal income was subject to taxation. At the time, the tax law required that every citizen earning more than $5,000 of legal income had to pay income taxes. Al Capone had never paid these taxes because on paper, he made less than 5000 a year, as all of his illegitimate earnings were laundered and shielded by certain financial gurus within the outfit. However, now that Capone's wife owned an expensive piece of property in Miami, which had been purchased in cash, the IRS was finally legally able to question where this money was coming from. That's right. So I will leave you on that cliffhanger for now. And we will cover part three next week. Dun, dun, dun. Go figure, Miami's, Miami was his downfall. It was. It, he came down here, and I mean, this is where he ended up spending his last days and ended up you know, dying down here. So, Shit, if I lived in Palm Island, I wouldn't leave either. Yep. For those of you that don't know, that's where the rich people live. No, the rich people. Oh, yeah, we're there's, talking big money. There's rich people, and then there's rich people, and they live on those islands. Yeah, you, literally, you can't get on the island unless, like, you have permission. Right. It's wild. It's crazy. It's Miami, baby. It is Miami. <laughs> and Miami is a special kind of crazy, I'm going to tell you right now. Okay, so we have a question. This one is from Casey. Hello, Casey. Thank Hi, you for Casey. the question. People frequently mispronounce my name to be Casey. They do. Which 
is annoying because people, you know, don't know phonetics, but Casey is a nice name. Well, it's not just not my name. Not everybody's hooked on phonics. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? <laughs> so Casey's question is, do the both of you feel that this podcast has become a project for father-daughter bonding or have you always been this close? So I feel like we were close before this, but I definitely think that it's made us closer because Absolutely. it, well, number one, just doing it's been fun and bonding, but right. also it kind of forces us to sit down once a week and yeah. like, you know, carve out the time. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We were close. I mean, shit, I raised you. So we've always been, you know, together that way. But naturally, when you, you know, when you got older and went to college and, you know, started your life and stuff, naturally, we live in two different places. So we haven't always been able to spend a lot of time together. So this definitely for you and I has been a, um, I've certainly enjoyed it. And I still enjoy it. And hopefully one day we'll live in the same city again, or near each other. You know, it won't be over long distance Zoom or whatever, but yeah. We can set up a recording studio. That's my plan. I and then we can too. like do the shit in person. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, we've, I, I, th I think we've always been close. Um, not to go into, you know, too many personal details, but gotten closer because of it. And we definitely get to spend more time. You know, like you said, we carve the time out to actually spend, you know, the hour, two hours, whatever it is that we, we talk. So, so yeah, I mean. Yeah, I thought that was a good question. It was a good question, but I love you. Love you too. All right. So next week, we'll try and uh, wrap up old Al Capone. Put a bow on this bad boy. Put a bow on this bad boy. All right. Part three. I hope you guys are liking the Al Capone. He's come up in a lot of our previous cases randomly. Yeah. It, well, now, you know, he's, it's, now he's the star of the show. It's funny, like, until you actually, like... Most everybody knows Al Capone, but only, you know, what Hollywood's portrayed or whatever. Like, I didn't know a lot of the things that we've talked about. Like, you know, I never knew he got shot in the testicles. You never, like, I never knew he got shot in the scrotum either. Yeah, he's like the original gangster. Like, he's the, he's the OG. He is the OG. Yeah, shot himself square in the balls. Yeah, like, like, what are the chances? And a golf bag, like, the gun was in a golf bag. And he got so mad that shot himself in the scrotum. I feel like that was God's way of being like, you need to be taken down a peg or two there, boy. Slow down, cowboy. <laughs> Slow down, cowboy. Which he did not heed that warning. Those type of people don't. Like, even when his, his wife and his mother were like, you need to retire. He's like, no, it's not happening. Yeah, he was basically like, nah. Yeah, no, it's my city. I'm keeping it. It's hard to just go back to working as a shoe shiner, I guess. It's Well, it's hard to walk away from that money. <laughs> you know, but hey, what are you going to do? Well, if you'll uh, give us an old review, that would be nice. It's important. Yeah, it is important. Yeah. So you can follow us on Instagram at can't make this shit up pod. We're on Facebook at can't make this shit up a true crime podcast. True. We are on the Twitter at CTMSU pod. Boom. And yeah, if you'll give us a little review, that'd if you like us, that'd be great. If you don't if like not, us. That's all right. Just keep on scrolling yeah, or just... whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> we thank everyone who is listening and paying attention and devoting some time to us. We certainly appreciate it. And if you have a comment or a critique or a whatever, we'll you know enjoy reading those too. We love our little can't make this shit up fam. Yeah, it's getting it's getting larger and larger daily. So which we appreciate. So thank you everybody that's sharing us or talking about us to your friends and whatnot. 
we definitely enjoy doing it and uh we're glad that people enjoy it so so until next week bye bye